Hola, hola, talofa, bonjour, hello, tilters. Why, hello, Blaze. <laughs> Great to have y'all back on Super Tilt the podcast. We're your hosts, Marnie and Blaze, and today we are supremely pleased to share our latest conversation with Maria Shem. Now, just before we get into the good stuff, a brief request, go on and subscribe to Super Tilt the Podcast from wherever you're listening right now. And if you're feeling open-hearted, flick us a five-star review as it's super damn helpful to ensure we get this juicy content in more Tilter's ears. Mm, damn straight. Now, Maria, magnificent Maria. She is a partner on the investment team at Electric Capital, which is an early stage venture firm focused on cryptocurrencies, blockchain, fintech, and marketplaces. Prior to Electric and as a Cornell and Harvard trained computer science engineer, Maria was CTO and co-founder of a startup that helped SMBs smoothly create supply chains with manufacturers around the world. Prior to that, she worked on search tech at Microsoft with her features being shipped to more than 1 billion devices. Woo! Woo! Maria is a great advocate for women, minority, and immigrant founders in the tech space, especially in Web3. And our conversation with Maria is so nourishing and empowering. I think y'all are gonna love it. Let's hop into it. Hey, Maria, welcome to Super Tilt, the podcast. We are delighted to be dropping in with you. Hot off, hot off the back of uh, (laughs) week in Miami where you were hot. The ecosystem was hot. <laughs> Everything was pretty damn hot, really. Yes, um, indeed. And I got a sunburn and, you know, I ooh, think that's wow. very indicative of the temperature of the space as well. There we go. Mm, well, thank yeah. you for having me. It's really nice to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah, there's a lot that we can dive into. And you're a really awesome personality and human, I guess, that we've been tracking on Twitter. So it's really rad to have the actual interaction now, considering yeah. we're at the other end of the world and not in Miami vibes. So <laughs> mentally, mentally, we were there. Yeah. <laughs> mentally, we was women. We was women at that pool, maybe even in a matching pool with quadratic funding alignment. <laughs> no, it, the best types of pools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Let's go to your vibe in Web3 and what got you down this proverbial rabbit hole initially. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, you know, currently I work as an investor at a venture capital firm based in San Francisco called Electric Capital, and I joined them in 2018. And before joining Electric in 2018, I was working on a supply chain startup. My background more broadly is I studied computer science and political science in college, went to work at Microsoft for a little bit. I was a product manager there, went to get my master's in computer science and started my own company in the supply chain space. And the the supply chain space in particular is what ended up getting me into crypto. I had so I started my company in 2015, and that's you know when Ethereum kind of came to be. And also, this was a lot of direct-to-consumer stuff. So think like Warby Parker and Casper, like you know these brands really came to prominence during that era. And a lot of people or a lot of small businesses 
had these fantastic product ideas and, and knew how to market to people directly on Instagram, but they didn't have their supply chain figured out. And so my startup basically stepped in and was a platform for these small businesses to work with manufacturers. But as a result, I had all of these small businesses that were in the US, UK, Canada. I think I had a few in New Zealand as well. And then manufacturers in Asia and South America and Eastern Europe. And they had to pay each other. They had to transact, do a business transaction, but a cross-border business transaction, which was really painful. And I watched them struggle with this because not only were foreign transaction fees high and you know you had all of that stuff but that's that's almost solvable i think the the harder problem was that none of these companies had transacted with each other before and they are from different countries you know they speak different languages and so there was really like a trust issue like how when do i pay you how much do i pay you and really what they needed was like a very lightweight escrow that would be that would be affordable and easy to use for small businesses so i kind of Flock back to the, you know, to, to kind of Ethereum launching to smart contracts. And I was like, oh, well, that's potentially a thing. You can write rules on top of money. And that seems like you can write some sort of lightweight escrow for people to use. So then that's when I started exploring crypto in first place. Realized quickly that what I had in mind wouldn't have worked because fiat on ramps and off ramps were pretty immature. And, and still, I, I think arguably KYC and AML is you know, very different across different countries. And because I had such a broad customer base, it really, you know, there was no kind of cohesive user experience I could give them. So at any rate, I, I realized it wouldn't work today, but theoretically, you know, once you can start writing rules on top of money and, and having a database that's effectively, you know, can't be changed, that was incredibly powerful. So I started looking into crypto after I stopped working on my company. And, you know, I guess that's what that's what got me into the space. That's amazing to hear about your background in supply chains. I was super interested in blockchain because of my background in circular systems and seeing that blockchain could be utilized for tracing circularity, basically. And I think Nani is similar. You can speak on that, Mons. Yeah, totally. Back in 2017, thinking about supply chains, particularly in relation to not just food, but physical materials and the fashion industry, yeah. et cetera. Mm. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. I'd love yeah. to know, Maria, how has it been shifting from founder, co-founder to investor? Wow. It has been interesting. I feel like so many questions that I had as a founder in terms of like, why do VCs act this way? Or like, why do they ask this question? Or like, why do they you know, and make this investment, but not that investment. It makes so much sense to me now. I think there's a lot, like the answer is actually fairly easy, which is just, it's based on the VC business model. Like VCs are, you know, venture capital firms are also businesses. They have their own business model and they have to do things that conform and make sense with their own business model. Right. And so like, but I think I, I really didn't understand that when I was a founder and I really didn't understand how VCs worked. So that's probably, you know, a huge huge part of it. And then I think the other part that's really cool and really fun is as a VC, I get to meet all these founders and just see what they're working on. And 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 I think as a VC in the crypto space in particular, I can also play around with a lot of things. Like it feels it feels a lot like play, right? Like especially mm -hmm. in the NFT space, I can yeah. like I can walk around crypto voxels and that's part of my job. And I can, you know, I I can basically like try out writing a smart contract and I can like play with all these things. I can play with DeFi and I can play with DAOs. And I mean, it's fantastic. This is just the most interesting space I've 
ever encountered in my life. And I think as an intellectually curious person, which I think is the the guiding principle of everyone I've met in crypto, is that they're a really, really intellectually curious person. Um, there are so many different rabbit holes you can go down, right? You can go down like, what is the history of money? Or you can go down how are financial products constructed and made? And you can go down the art space now. You can go down how are communities constructed. You can go down incentive systems and game theory, you know, just kind of infinite, infinite things that you can start exploring. Yes, so true. And so much. <laughs> just so much. <laughs> to the point where like, if you're also... Very overwhelming. You know... Yeah, and if you have, you know, distracting distractible tendencies, it's it's just a <laughs> it's a shit show, really. <laughs> and I think a lot of people in this space are probably, you know, that, that way inclined or ADD or whatever we want to, to frame it as, but definitely intellectually curious. Well, speaking of that and speaking of the plethora of rabbit holes, one big rabbit hole popping out, obviously, in relation to what has been going on in recent months in NFTs mm-hmm. and knowing that you're really passionate about this area is this consuming like a majority of your time at the moment yeah how, how do you feel generally about yes it, it, I mean it totally is so I mean my backstory is actually that I'm an engineer I'm a product person I'm a tech person I'm like the black sheep in my family because I am those things because both my father and my sister are artists they're both painters and I has somehow ended up as a venture capitalist. And I'm, I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm sure they're very confused as well. But I think, you know, NFTs just, I think probably my, I mean, my first interaction with NFTs was CryptoKitties. I played around with it in 2018. I was like, oh, that's cool. You can like breed kitties. I thought it was interesting. But I think the the thing that really got me into NFTs was actually CryptoVoxels. I started just I love art in the first place, and I also love science fiction. And of course, science fiction writers have written a lot about metaverses. And so walking through crypto voxels is, you know, you're walking through this metaverse. And I never thought that when we actually make a metaverse, it would be like 95% art galleries. Super bizarre (laughs) to me. I don't, you know, for whatever reason, it's, I think every popular conception of a metaverse is like, I mean, in no popular conception of the metaverse is it 95% art galleries, but that is just the way it is. And so I just love walking around and I look at sculptures and I look at art and I click around and yeah. And I think, how can you not be into NFTs after, after just strolling around crypto voxels? Yeah. Cool. Interesting that that was such a pivotal experience for you in terms of getting into NFTs. I haven't heard that from anyone yet. No. The gateway drug is often mm, something more tangible, but in contrast, CryptoVoxels is not tangible or yet. <laughs> yeah. What um, is the most common um, way you've heard people get into NFTs? I'm actually very curious. Mm, CryptoPunks comes up a lot. A lot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. 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 And I sure. guess um, related to that is this feeling, circling back to the community, community chat this feeling of like oh i'm early in this niche industry of others that are also vibing this aesthetic and um, i think the personalization element mm. that comes out really strong people are able to connect to the nft through the personalization and different characteristics yeah. what yeah, yeah. i'd love to know what have been the most exciting nft experiments or implementations you experienced on the ground in Miami, any kind of gamification things that were most alluring to you? 
Yes. Excellent question because I was, you know, the, the time I spent in Miami, I was like, I remember when the narrative used to be like, well, why can't you buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin? Like, you know, I need to be able to spend this. And then looking around Miami and all the truly, truly, truly interesting implementations or uses for crypto. I mean, none of it had anything to do explicitly with payments, right? It was actually all about, like, when you think about what Bitcoin and what crypto was about from the very, very beginning, it was about human coordination. Like, how do you incentivize a group of people who don't know each other, who have no connections whatsoever to, to come together and to coordinate on something and to do something? And I think that's what NFTs and social tokens and DAOs are effectively empowering people to do today, but on a with more rules, right? With with Bitcoin, it's really just like, hey, we have an incentive mechanism. You know, you can become a miner, blah blah blah. But with with DAOs and social tokens, you, it, it it becomes way more complex and way more interesting and way more rich. So I think the the first first or second night I was in Miami. I went to Blau's set at a club and he was playing the set and everyone was just like so excited, so into it because no one has interacted with another human for a year. And so everyone's mind was like a little bit blown. Mm-hmm. It was also his first set since COVID started, I believe. Oh, whoa. And so, so he yeah. was fizzing. <laughs> yeah. And it, was, it was crazy because just in the middle of it, he flashed this QR code. And basically it was like, okay, the first 99 fans to scan this QR code gets an NFT. And it's just like, all of a sudden. Was that that behind him? Or like, how big was this QR code at this point? Oh, it was huge. He probably had like four different screens, like two screens next to him, another two screens next to him, and then Mm -hmm. maybe one more screen behind him, so maybe five screens. So like all of these screens started showing this giant QR code. And of course, I think if COVID hadn't happened, I'm not sure people would have known what to do with it. Right. Like no one was using QR codes in the United States, but now we all use it for getting menus. Asia, it's been like for 20, 20 years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. In Asia, it's like I, I, in Asia, I've literally seen beggars on the street have a QR code to be like, Hey, can you like chat me some money? So yeah, yeah, very different culture. But like Mm -hmm. in the United States, I'm fairly sure if not for COVID, no one would have known how to scan this QR code. But now all of a sudden, everyone in the crowd like gets out their phones they scan it they're you know desperately trying to get this nft and it's actually really cool right because when you claim this nft which i am proud to say that i i actually did i'm a little <gasps> surprised yeah. and thank you i i'm super excited to see what it actually is once i get it but but i did i did claim it and i will get something i've been told all of a sudden with this nft i can prove i was there at that point in time right and i mm-hmm. can and and like forever I'll have, I've, I've been inducted into Blau's community and, you know, and I, I can only imagine that Blau is also thinking about like, how do I incentivize people to engage and, and to stay active in this community? I, I know if he's done NFTs in the past where, you know, it's like, hey, we have limited editions of certain things and people who hold my NFTs can purchase and people who don't hold my NFTs cannot purchase these things. So like, NFTs start mm-hmm. being these gateway membership cards or these mm-hmm. gateway sort of portals through which you have exclusive access to things that you haven't had before. And so that was, that was, you know, kind of like night one or night two in Miami that I got to experience that and seeing, I mean, I'm so used to crypto being so obscure that like seeing an entire, you know, room full 
of people without their phones to claim an NFT, like that, that is, that is actually crypto going mainstream. Like this is where we're seeing crypto getting integrated into everyday life in a way that people feels natural to people. And that's really magical. And that's really amazing. And I, I think that that speaks to how pivotal of a time we're in right now, where slightly more than a decade since Bitcoin has been created, we're finally at a point in time where you can, you can, you can start interacting with crypto in a kind of a casual way, right? And it's, it's through NFTs and it's through creators. And it's because people have so much trust in creators in the first place to want to do stuff like this. Another cool example is G Money, who set up basically like a real life, it, effectively a game where for three days he would announce at a specific point in time where for people mm -hmm. to meet. And if you show up there, you get a proof of eight. You know, again, it's kind of like, hey, you were there physically, this is an NFT you can claim. But the cool thing is that he would tweet it out and people would just kind of like rush to these locations. Yeah. And then everyone ended up meeting everyone else. Like I saw this tweet cool. where this guy was just like, yeah, I mean, I got to meet so many cool people, right? These are people who are somehow exactly interested in the same things that I'm interested in. And that's the only way we could have ended up here. And so that was also super interesting. Effectively, there was like a little party at every single location at the specific point in time. And now everyone has these NFTs and, and unclaimed ones basically get burned. And then the other, I, you know, the other thing that's kind of similar in, in, in a very similar vein to these two examples is Friends with Benefits. They created this in real life party that you could go to and you needed 60 FWB tokens to get in. And that was also really cool. Like this idea that, you know, now crypto again is, is you've been inducted into this community and, and now you can get perks and you can interact with people in different ways. So yeah, I mean, I, I would say overall Miami was really interesting because especially post COVID, everyone's going to want to be social. Everyone wants to interact with each other in real life. And crypto has basically proved to me in Miami that it's actually a really great mechanism for people to come together in real life, to incentivize people to do something, to coordinate humans to get together. And so that that was super exciting. And I'm, I'm, I actually think that like, you know, as soon as the vaccine gets rolled out a little bit more and the U.S. in general opens up, I would not be shocked if we start seeing more and more of these things. Mm, I agree. I agree. And an immediate question that pops up is how genuine is the shift to you know, functional, usable NFTs for the mainstream? Because what we saw in Miami was brilliant, still very niche though for, for the crypto, the natives, the crypto mm. natives. And just off the back of that, my current thoughts are around like how do we prevent this be from becoming for the kind of crypto elite? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I mean, I think that's true, right? Where it's like you own a CryptoPunk you know, you're super cool and you get access to all these things. But like in order to afford a CryptoPunk, you, you do have to be a little bit elite to to be able to afford that. So, I mean, I, I think that is, I don't know. I think that's a human trait. Like I think for as long as human society has existed, like there have just been exclusive groups. But I think that the flip side of that is also really interesting, which is I'm now part of a DAO that funds female and non-binary gender founders in oh, crypto specifically. Is this Kamarabi? It is. Yes. Oh, 
I love that because so many times I've walked into the room, especially in crypto, I mean, especially in tech, and then especially, especially in crypto, where I'm the only woman. And I cannot imagine that it is because of a lack of talents. I feel like there's just, you know, like we need to be funny women in general. And so I'm mm-hmm. just so happy that there are DAOs like this that exist. And I think it exists because, again, crypto solves for this human coordination problem where maybe you do have a lot of people who are really excited about funding women, but they exist in these kind of like separate pockets of the internet. And it's really hard to get these people to coordinate together, to pool together money, to create a DAO and to start funding, you know, like the voting mechanism, like all of that, the DAO enables you to do. So I actually think, yes, there is going to be some exclusivity around what type of really expensive NFT can you own. But at the same time, crypto can be a very you know, this force that actually brings together minorities or groups of people that traditionally haven't been able to concentrate power in any way to actually be Mm -hmm. able to coordinate and concentrate power and to do things together. So I think, you know, this, this DAO that funds female founders, like that's definitely one thing. And I would just not be shocked to see more and more DAOs emerge that found people, you know, that fund people of color, that fund different minorities in different ways. I I really think that's going to be a wave of things that's coming. And then you had a question around usability. Yeah. I mean, it's a struggle. I'm not going to say that it isn't. I think though that what's going to end up happening, and this is totally just a theory, but I think what's going to end up happening is, you know, you're going to be driven by wanting to own something by the creator that you really admire. So for example, if you're a non-crypto person at Blau's concert, and then he says, hey, scan this QR code and sign up for a wallet to get this NFT. I mean, is that extremely tedious for like a regular Mm. person who doesn't care about Blau? Yes, like no one's going to do that. But if I'm at this concert, like presumably, you know, I like him, I like his music, and I might just hop through a few hurdles to get that thing. And Mm -hmm. so I, you know, so I I think usability is going to be a problem, but usability is not the core value proposition. And people are going to use crypto for that core value proposition. And I think having creators coming in is going to be a huge driver of that. And then eventually, I mean, with all technology, the UX will just get better and better, right? But it, it does take a little bit of time. Like the internet, or like you think about early web pages. I mean, that was extremely painful to watch load line by line or dial up was extremely painful. But yeah, it just takes a little bit of, but but like the core value proposition was not, hey, how quickly can I get online, right? The core value proposition was that I could get online. So I, I think, you know, with a little bit of time, we'll get there with, with better usability. I love that perspective. I also love that you're doing the shout out for Kamarabi because I was part of the initial crew at ETH Denver actually in 2020 that launched Metagamma Delta, which is also female for DAO. That's awesome. That's yeah. Fantastic. So we, yeah. I, I, as you're as you're saying this, I'm like, oh my god, we need a partner. We 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 should do a Metagamma yes. Delta Kamarabi collab. Mm. I mean, yes, I think so. Yeah, we should. Yeah. <laughs> because what's should. great is we could collaborate, say, on the next Gitcoin grants round because we're not so much investment focus. It sounds like Komarabi's got that foundational layer to it. But anyway, the vision is like onboarding all sorts of women, whether they're from Web3 or Web2, and so many like phases and ages. And like, we're, yeah, it's really rad to see the diversity streaming on it. So future is bright. Not exclusive to just women, also. True. Yes. Super excited to see more non binary Mm. folk Mm. enter the space. Mm. 
Yeah. Yes. Now, your point about the influences being like a real pull-in, gateway drug factor, do you think there's some really interesting things about remixing, NFT remixing in that sense also that, that'll help, you know, pull them? Yes, definitely. I would love to hear how you think about NFT remixing, but I mean, I definitely think so, right? Like we, we remix mm-hmm. all the time in real life. We sample songs and like we have artworks that are inspired by other artworks or have subtle nods or subtle kind of like, you know, inspirations from other things. Like everything is inspired by something else. And yeah, and I, I think the cool thing with NFTs, which you can already kind of see through some of the experiments that Mirror is doing, enables you to start splitting the revenue in different ways and having different types of owners on NFTs. So yeah, I, I think the next thing we'll see if it hasn't happened already, I would actually I'm sure it has happened somewhere. I just haven't seen it yet. But is this idea of like, hey, I can take this NFT as an influence and I can take that NFT as an influence and I can create a whole new NFT that maybe like samples these two NFTs in in different ways. And now my, my NFT is a whole new creative work, but I can link back to these other NFTs in some way. And then I can also reward those original creators in some way as well. Yeah, I think that's so exciting. To enable idea piggybacking, essentially, which happens mm. across the board in life, yeah. but yeah. ensuring that that royalties are split fairly and justly yes. yeah. for yeah equitable gains for all involved mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. creative process. Mm-hmm. I think that's so powerful. I agree. And it's kind of like a global collaboration studio for all creators and and wow. those involved. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I never thought about it like that, but yeah, absolutely. And I. Yeah. Sorry, and I was just going to say, it's cool to see like Foundation and Doing Good announcing their royalty split systems for those NFT marketplaces. Totally, totally. What about the NFT crossover with thinking about collaboration and, and humans involved in creating content of themselves? Maria, I think you no doubt would have been seeing developments in like the nft meets only fans domain or like maybe more risque content do you have any thoughts around that like how it could you know be i'll used? be honest i actually didn't know there was nfts in the only fans domain but that is awesome because first of all you should link me to stuff because i definitely didn't know that existed but you know i've always felt like platforms like OnlyFans and platforms like Patreon, I mean, effectively, you're you're gating content for your biggest fans in different ways, right? And so it completely makes sense for you to gate that content based on social tokens or, 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 you know, kind of like an NFT membership. And you can do that without getting censored in some way or without getting without upsetting some sort of platform in some way, right? You, you basically have direct access to your fans and no one's going to come in and say like, no, you can't post this or no, this is, you have to take this down. And so that's super exciting. I didn't know there was an NFT experimentation with OnlyFans. Mm. Yeah, I think it can be a super powerful way to empower and support sex workers who in mm-hmm. traditional yep. systems are not given that power and mm. ownership. Yes. Yes, yes, agreed. Yes. Here's a question now about intersection of NFTs and social impact because we were absorbing all of your awesome tweets about the, the frontiers of NFTs. Financialization of NFTs was one of them. For example, the fundraising piece for charities and right. public goods right? and in the social impact slash climate arena. Thoughts on how they can support initiatives for yeah. 
basically, yeah, planetary resilience and and on the social impact organizations too, like how they could basically onboard themselves to the NFT sphere mm-hmm. in, a, mm-hmm. in a rapid way to, to make the most. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So first of all, I think NFTs are the perfect fit for fundraising for public goods and for nonprofits. And the reason is obviously that you not only when you sell the NFT, you you get this chunk of funds, which is the goal, right? That's the fundraiser. But in order to get the funds, you're usually using some sort of auction mechanism, right? So that means that your community can suddenly start getting involved to bid over this NFT. And, and so that's a really great way for any nonprofit or charity or, or fundraiser to start engaging with their community where, you know, normally maybe they're not interacting in any way. So I think that's fantastic. And then of course, there is the additional element of when you're interacting, people start learning about your cause in different ways. So that's also really good. Like UC Berkeley recently released their NFT and that NFT would be used to fund research. And so, you know, all of a sudden people can start mm-hmm. learning about, about, these different topics that maybe they they wouldn't have touched on before. And then I think the last part that's really great is that because you get a share of the secondary sales, you effectively fundraise forever, right? So every single time yes. that this piece sells, you get a mm. get a fraction of it. And so it's not it's a fundraiser that goes on in perpetuity and that's very powerful. There's I don't think there is a mechanism that works like that in the traditional charity space today. So you know, so I do think NFTs are a really great fit for charities and nonprofits or anyone trying to fundraise for a cause. But yeah, I think there's a question of how do these places even start learning about NFTs? How do you pull them in? Yeah, I'm not really mm-hmm. sure. Like UC Berkeley releasing their own NFT and it's for, I believe it's for cancer research. I mean, that probably is because so many crypto people come out of UC Berkeley. There's just strong ties yeah. there, right? Or like Shi256, yeah. which I'm, you know, I'm sure you guys are aware of, like yeah. that came out of UC Berkeley as well. So, you know, so UC Berkeley already has pre-existing ties to crypto. And so I, it's probably not a leap for them to do something like this. But for other organizations, I imagine it must be. But, you know, hopefully as they see more news stories around UC Berkeley, you know, selling their, selling this kind of aspect of the Nobel Prize to like, New York Times posting something to, you know, as more and more of these organizations or, or like Tor or Edward Snowden's thing, you know, as more organizations and kind of these big names start using this as a way of fundraising. I'm hoping every organization is starting to look into it. That's so cool. Now we've got to ask you, Maria, let's touch on Zoom Bachelor because we haven't talked about that yet. And it's really damn intriguing because yeah, we get the essence of Bachelor. We get the Zoom life vibe from, from COVID. So yeah, please share what, what that involved. Yes. Okay. Zoom Bachelor. Right. So I am, you know, obviously I work as a investor in crypto. But little known fact is I also produce internet shows whenever I have a show idea that I think is really interesting. And Zoom Bachelor was one of those things. So that I created with Jean, who is the CEO and founder of Akita, which is this really amazing software company. And she I mean, she's so smart. She was a professor at MIT. She like got her PhD in computer science. I I was just like, 
I try mm-hmm. to talk to her every single day and I, I love her to pieces yeah. and she's incredibly intelligent. So anyways, it's the two of us who, you know, like, I guess like two computer science people who also happen to love The Bachelor and Bachelorette wanted to put something on during COVID because if you kind of put yourself in the beginning of COVID, there weren't any more live events. So sports were canceled. No new shows were being made. Everyone was stuck Mm. at home. All of our single friends were freaking out because, you know, for uh, everyone was like, oh my God, how am I going to date? Like I can't meet anyone Mm. in person. This is awful. And so as a result, we decided what if we did a internet show? Like what if we just did something that was, we streamed it on Twitch and we would get, our first one is Zoom Bachelorette. So we got this, again, this great founder. She graduated from Stanford. She's super smart. So she was the Bachelorette. We spent a total of $40 to produce the show. So we, we, most of that's... Yeah, most of that was for securing the website domain. And our first fundraiser was for Feeding America. And we raised over $40,000 based on, yeah, based on $15 tickets. And yeah, yeah, and and it was great because not only did you have this bachelorette who's extremely intelligent and just kind of very different from the types of bachelorettes you actually see on the show, but also we brought in a bunch of different types of men who would be the contestants. and. We also randomly had a lot of like famous tech people contribute, like Alex Stamos, who was a former executive at Facebook, or Steven Sanofsky, who was a former Microsoft exec. Like a lot of them ended up contributing to the fundraiser as well and watching Zoom Bachelorette, which is mind blowing. I can't, I don't, I don't know. Steven Sanofsky watching Zoom Bachelorette kind of blows my mind. But, but yeah, so that was, that was that. And then one of the contestants who was a fan favorite was Sheil. He is a fintech investor. He was actually my mentor at 500 Startups. What? (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely know Sheil. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, there you go. And and so he was a fan favorite. People loved because he had made this, if I remember correctly, he made this like beautiful lentil soup. We had like a cooking contest and everyone was supposed to cook something for Katya, who was a bachelorette. And she he made this beautiful thing with herbs out of, that he picked out of his garden. And, and then he got rejected. And I think people felt really sad about that. At and, this point, had they managed to ever see each other IRL or this was this was all zooming oh this is over zoom this was a three-hour zoom show and it was just a series you know she starts off with 12 contestants and Mm. there's a series of dates including a haircutting live haircutting contest and then she picked someone at the end she picked someone named Ro and they did meet up in person but I was told that it long term did not work out but we're vibing during the show. I was I was told by people later that they it was very obvious he was going to win from the beginning, which I didn't I didn't think so. But other people who watched the show mm-hmm. thought so. Yeah, and then Sheil mm-hmm. got picked for the next, and that one we ended up fundraising for the NWACP because this was during the Black Lives Matter movement during that summer. We ended up postponing the show because so much was happening around that, and we we held the show later. Mm-hmm. But we were fundraising fundraising for the NWACP Legal Defense Fund. We raised, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say we raised over $100,000 for that. No crypto. This was fiat raising. Oh yeah. This is on a GoFundMe. Yeah. People were extremely generous and it it was awesome to see that. But yeah, we had a show and you know, Sheil also, it was over two weekends. Sheil also ended up picking a woman and it was 
it was found, it was it was really interesting to watch everyone go through some of these dates, especially since a lot of our contestants are like, I mean, all of our contestants actually were very like high powered women who, yeah. you know, who, who was just, they were so funny and they were so charismatic. And so it was just such a fun show to do. <laughs> you must be thinking now like, wow, okay, how do we integrate NFTs into this Zoom bachelor, bachelorette? I I really did think about that and I ended up doing another show afterwards and I was thinking about like, oh, like should we have minted NFTs for this? Should we have incorporated crypto? If I do a next show, I definitely will. I think those two were put together. I mean, the first show we put together in, in literally like a week. Wow. So, good hustle. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So yeah. So I, I think for the next one, definitely. Cool. <laughs> Amazing. So fun. What a fun project to get into. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally and it, it just opens up so many opportunities for when we can just, as you say, literally forty dollars. Like screw these Netflix HBO budgets that are just <laughs> out of this world. Like what can we do? Reality TV for impact. Yes. yes. Cool. Wow, yeah, actually. Yeah. Now we're just going to zoom through a quick fire rapid round. Maria, just go with your gut and answer the first option that Mm. comes to you. Money will kick us off. Okay. All right. Number one, Marin Beach or Sausalito? Oh, uh, Sausalito. MetaMask or Rainbow Wallet? Mm, MetaMask. Super Rare or Zora? Ooh, Zora, maybe. Bachelor or The Bachelorette? Oh, Bachelorette, for sure. Vacation in Miami or Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico. Paris Hilton crypto shot or, Tim, his name's just escaped me, the guy who featured. Okay, sorry, don't worry about that. For the record, I do, I, you know, I, I probably would have picked Paris Hilton, so. Yeah. Oh, us. on that note, did you see her on the ground in Miami? I, I mean, didn't. Did you- I didn't. I didn't. I saw her Insta- like her teaser Instagram post, you know, like a week before Miami or something. And she was on a private jet and she was like, guess where I'm going? And I was like, oh, please let it be the Bitcoin conference. And it was. Yeah, I didn't see her. <laughs> Dang. Next time. Next time. Find next time. Next time. Three words. In three words, how would you describe your vibe. Whoa. Okay. No one's ever asked me that. I would say I am very, what is the word I'm looking for? Maybe it, inclusive. Like I, I, I like it when everyone feels included. Like I, I hate that feeling where someone's kind of like sitting apart, feeling like they're not part of the group. And, mm. you know, whenever I see someone like that, I always try to make them feel included. And that's very important to me. Oh, that was more than three words. Loquacious, like talks talks a lot, maybe. <laughs> no, I, I don't know what else I would add. <laughs> we break the rules here. We that's cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and this beautiful discussion. So enriching. Yes, I am fizzing on NFTs. I think we could go yeah. keep going yeah. like Alice in her wonderland, Alice. diving down the holes, rabbit holes <laughs> for the win. <laughs> I agree. agree. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Gosh, damn. I am so filled with inspo around NFTs right now. 
I can't even. <sighs> you know, I, th- I think it's crazy. I think I've learnt as much as I can about NFTs, and then the next day it's like, <laughs> nah, <laughs> sorry, here's 10 extra ideas to yes. wrap your head around. Mm. Well, and 10 extra or 100 extra ways of framing it in kind of new paradigms or new narratives or just in fresh ways that really gets the mind going. Yes, ticking, ticking, mm-hmm. ticking, mm-hmm. ticking mm-hmm. away. Well, you know, I wasn't expecting her to say that CryptoVoxels was kind of her gateway drug to... Nor I, Marnie. Nor I. <laughs> I find that very intriguing. But yes, from a gamified virtual reality metaverse angle, mm. it makes sense. And even from my perspective, with an urban background kind of mm-hmm. lens, mm-hmm. understanding structures and like... The planning of a metaverse, right? Yeah, yeah. And how many urban planners are getting involved from the get-go in the, I guess, the builds of or founding teams of NFT metaverse scenarios? Tick, tick, tick. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> Light bulb moment. <laughs> okay. And also, as you stroll around, that really that really struck a chord with me. The fact that, you know, back in, I guess, 90s, even 80s, when science fiction novels were projecting what was going to be happening in the 2020s, uh, a lot of it was pretty dystopic around what the metaverse would look and feel like. And Maria's point that, yo, isn't it cool that it's like 95% art galleries and brands that we associate with like fashion or creatorship? Like, that's actually really surprising. Mm. Creator forward metaverses. Mm. And it does bring it into a more tangible level when you're like, oh, well, it's just like going for a stroll around the top galleries in Paris, for example, but I'm in the comfort of my own home. Yeah, um, yeah. And f- for me, I think what what is required for me to get really jazzed and psyched about a metaverse, more nature inputs, please. Yes, I'm, yes. I'm walking around okay. virtually and I'm like, yes, cool, art. Uh-huh. <laughs> give, me, give me that <laughs> nature. Give me some fresh green kind of gradient savvy landscape yes and as we talked about with jeremy like really hyper realistic beautiful Mm. renders Mm -hmm. i think that's going to have to come first before we can get really beautiful nature first kind of metaverses Mm. yes where the environment is the art that is, is not the afterthought perhaps now another thing that maria touched on which really landed with with me was around why are NFTs so perfectly primed for nonprofits and fundraising and that whole world and her points about you know NFTs being so ripe for it a perfect fit like wow we are going to see so much more coming out in that direction I think and it reminded me of episode 16 with Manu right Manu El Zuru mm-hmm co-founder of doing good yes yeah and they're completely jumping on that thought wave with a refreshing take on how might we fuse nfts and social impact in a really dynamic and engaging way for collectors or patrons as we Mm -hmm. might call them for Mm -hmm. community around the world yeah Um, they're leading the charge there for sure Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe it might even take influencers or famous people to even onboard more mainstream into the space, as we've talked about. But yeah, Maria was pretty, pretty adamant that that is going to be a big gateway drug for people. Because when you really want to connect with your idol, 
your whether that's sports star or music star or whatever they are you are willing to go that extra little mile in terms of friction points mm. now money who would you go that extra mile for <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Imagine oh my you God. weren't already in the crypto space. Yeah. Who would you freak out about the most? Oh my God. I think it changes daily. I mean, yesterday it was Naomi, the tennis star. I really, really, really would love to meet her, given everything that's going on right now. Naomi Osaka. I would. I'd actually would love to meet Gaga. I'd do it for her. Interesting. Little sisterhood. Anecdote, listeners, back in the day, I gave Marnie Lady Gaga's first CD album. And wow. it was a very selfish move. As a Christmas present, I just wanted to listen to it on my Discman. <laughs> on our long road trips with the family. Well, aren't you altruistic AF? Not. Hey, I'll forgive you, though. That was that was seeding them. It was planting the seed early on. You know what? And Gaga may well release a creator token in the not too distant future. She needs any help, we're here for it. We're here for you, Gaga. And maybe we piggyback on that and remix some stuff and (laughs) collaborate (laughs) and contribute to the global creator collaboration. Right, and earn some splits because of the collaboration royalties. Yes, yes. that could be quite lucrative. (laughs) Whoa! Wow. So many ideas. So many okay. Ideas. Now, Maria, maybe we need to pitch this to Electric Capital. Just saying. Speaking of Maria, find her on Twitter at Maria Shen. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope this has enriched your ears, your mind, maybe even your heart. Now you can share this episode or any others you're barbing with to your friends, your family, your colleagues. It's a really epic way to support us and the podcast and the time and effort that goes into crafting this sound wave journey we also have a weekly newsletter giving you the tldr on our conversations so go and sign up at supertilt.substack.com that's supertilt.substack.com <laughs> we'll be flowing back into your headphones next week thanks for tuning in and tilting with us peace boom